It's the Bigger Than Me podcast with your hosts, Aaron Pete. It's not very often that we get to talk about peace, negotiation, conflict resolution, how to communicate with others who we may disagree with. And that's why I'm so proud today to sit down with Professor Michelle LeBaron. She was a past educator of mine from Peter A. Allard School of Law, and I found her to be incredibly insightful, incredibly thoughtful, and thought-provoking when we're talking about how to mediate between two people who have different perspectives. And so I hope you enjoy this episode where we're able to dive into how to connect when we may disagree. Michelle, it's such a pleasure to sit down with you today. Would you mind introducing yourself briefly uh, for those who might not be acquainted? Thank you, Erin. It's a gift to be with you today. I'm a professor of law at the University of British Columbia at Allard School of Law and a longtime mediator, mediator trainer, and uh, negotiation teacher who really loves uh, arts and the questions around what artists can teach mediators and negotiators. Probably a skill that we should learn about at an earlier age than we do is this idea of negotiated relationships and how to connect. Because as you described, we had a course together. As you describe, this is something we do every single day. We negotiate relationships with other people, yet perhaps not always consciously. And I think you did an elegant job of bringing that to the forefront of our mind, of making sure that we understand how we connect with other people, that this isn't something that you just get trained to do when you use in one specific circumstance. This is every day in traffic, when you're buying your food at the grocery store, when you're coming home to see your spouse. This is an everyday thing. And I think sometimes we forget that. I'd like you to start maybe with how you got interested in this. When did this become a passion of yours? Well, thank you, Erin, and let me say I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, although we learn, of course, many things about relationship in our families of origin and our communities, um, they're not always perfect, nor are we. And so it really is helpful to step back and to um, to be conscious about the way that we build relationship, build rapport, and then negotiate um, our differences. How did I get involved? Well, I grew up in southern Alberta in a uh, white, mostly white community that was incredibly racist, um, and I found it deeply dissonant even as a child, I suppose, because I grew up during civil rights era in the U.S., and uh, so I was hearing about racism, and I was hearing about uh I don't think I knew much about the Japanese internment, but my family had um, lived on farms where Japanese internees had been sent, and so I heard something about that. Uh, and I found it deeply, deeply disquieting. So I felt that my um, career would need to, in some way, address injustice and address um, the way that we humans don't relate very constructively to each other. And uh, that is what got me involved in mediation and negotiation. I went to law school because I could, um, but I found it didn't fit me like a glove. You know, we say that we should find something to do that fits us like a glove. It did not. Uh, but luckily, mediation and negotiation helped me make sense of my law degree. 
Interesting. We hear this idea that children don't grow up and they aren't inherently born with these biases, these dislikes, these emotions, yet it's difficult once you're raised in that to kind of get away from it. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, what allowed you to have that sober second thought about uh, the decisions, the perspectives going on around you? Uh, because uh, to be honest, you can't fault a person too much for being raised in an environment and not knowing any better. And it sounds like you you did. And I'm just curious as to how that came about. Well, thank you. Again, that's a, that's a really... Um fertile question, I would say. And I would say that uh, it had to do with learning that my both of my families um, who had come from farms in southern Alberta had, uh, had Japanese internees on the farms, and I heard that they lived in the picker shacks out back, that the conditions were very dire for them. Uh, and that just really, it didn't make sense to me. And uh, I also saw that um, Indigenous people whose communities and, and reserves were surrounding the city where I grew up, uh, Lethbridge, were, were not talked about respectfully, and it bothered me. I think some of us are born, I would be one of those people with a kind of inherent sense of um of injustice or wanting to uh, respect others. And uh, I will tell you that um, a couple of my family members would tell racist jokes at the dinner table, and I this just incensed me. And so I think it's from that anger that, uh, that I resolved to do something in the world that would address that. That's beautiful. Was this something that was clear during your law education? Was this something that was at the front of your mind uh, that you were focused on? Or was there like a reinvigoration of this interest? You know, law school, you've also attended, Aaron. So um, you would know, or perhaps you would agree with me that um, law school doesn't necessarily focus on questions of racism or, or structural inequality. There may be some courses where that arises, but it's not the uh, so-called meat and potatoes of law school. So certainly when I went to law school before you did a couple of decades, um, it was not much talked about at all. And um, I finished law school because I didn't have another good plan honestly, uh, because it didn't feel to me like it really related to my deep interests. But um, just a few years, within five years of finishing law school, then mediation became very um, well-known and widely taught, and I became a family and commercial mediator. And that helped enormously, because uh, then I could see that I could enact some of the values that I had held very closely. I'm really curious about that period of your life because working as a native court worker, I would I assumed that criminal law would have been one of the most fraught, challenging areas of practice. It is not. Um, sheriffs that I talk to, court staff that I talk to, judges that I talk to, all concur that family law is the darkest. Uh, most twisted area of practice uh, for anybody to go into uh, because there's when you commit a crime, say you steal a candy bar, uh, say if it's even a more serious offense, 
there's still like a sense of justice that you could find, but there's a darkness to what family law brings about in people. And it's an ability to hurt a person deeper than perhaps a punch in the face and a regular attack. There's an ability to really wound people at the center of their core. And when you have a significant other or an individual who's able to say, you've never been a good person, uh, you'll never be a good person, and you're just an unlovable hateful individual that I'll never care for and that I've never cared for that hits at the core of us because they've seen you when you're brushing your teeth, when you're getting ready. They see you in as a human being in a different way. And so the emotions that exist in family law are, are so different than anything else you'll see in any other area of practice. And that seems to have somehow inspired you or influenced you. And I'm just curious as to what you saw during that period. Oh, Aaron, I think that's so true. Of course, those with whom we're intimate know us very well, so they know where our vulnerabilities are. And if then the tide of a good relationship turns into the shadow, um, it can be some of the most devastating uh, trauma that could ever be experienced. So I think I think you're exactly right. And I found working as a family law mediator that uh, many people came in at their very lowest ebb. I know very few people, actually, who have had constructive experiences with separation and divorce. <laughs> uh, and that's a sad thing. And I think, in part, it has to do with the way our system is structured. It has to do with the fact that although we have no-fault divorce in British Columbia, still we have pleadings, we have ways that the law can be used to harass the other um, if you are willing to spend the time and the money and the energy. And, uh, and that happens. And as we know, and you didn't mention this, but it's also the case that children are often a casualty. So children get used as pawns or as... Uh, as a power um, power pieces that uh, are the subject of negotiation. And um, I feel very, very fortunate to have done this. And I also could not have worked as a family law mediator more than just a few years because the, the challenges that arise and the states that people fall into and the shadow sides that surface um, are actually very difficult to hold. And I think one of the things we don't talk about enough is actually the referred trauma that happens for practitioners, for for legal practitioners, not to mention family members. It We become, our system somehow shapes us into becoming so harsh um, because these environments, the environment of of legal separation and divorce in Canada is still incredibly um, adversarial. I definitely feel that. I have a close friend right now who's going through, they're not married, but they're separating. And I would say that it's also an experience where you can't say who you would be in this circumstance. And he is seeing his his significant other, his past significant other, I guess, uh, behave in a way that he doesn't recognize and you don't know who people are until you're in this moment because and I tried to my best to explain this and he actually took it really well is that 
in my opinion, in many of these regards, there are actually three people in the relationship. It's you, the other person, and then the person you create out of that. And that is a separate and distinct relationship, separate from the two individuals. And you make certain covenants to that agreement. You say, I'm going to behave this way. This is what you can expect. And I think on both sides, we can start to see that fail. For men, I'm very critical of the individuals who stop doing date night after six months, who stop treating their significant other well, because you made that covenant. That is the person you agreed to deliver on. And when you cut back on that and say the honey moon period's over that's what the person agreed to if this was a contract that's what the person signed up for and so when you change that has consequences but through these relationships you don't know who you are after 30 days of arguing and arguing and arguing and disagreeing and and not getting restful sleeps and disagreeing over the smallest of things of who put the spoon in the in the dishwasher and who didn't do this, that you don't know who you are in that dark moment. And so the worst of people is exposed during these periods. And so to your point, being in a room with people who behave this way, just like how we talk about police officers seeing the worst 20% of people when they're committing crimes and acting offensives, we also see this in, in the in family law career that you're seeing people at their darkest at their most insidious and again i would use the word insidious because there's something darker to take that vulnerability and shine a light on it in court or to bring it up or point somebody's mistake out uh, in front of everybody when you know that that was them at their weakest i think that's right Aaron, and i i find it really interesting you're talking about this third that gets constellated because the third is uh you're right it's kind of a an entity by itself it's the relationship it's the coming together the union and it has certain values it has its own life it has its own character and then when you find that third being distorted being um being the the home or the seat of incredible disruption and uh and what seems to be very bad faith behavior it's uh incredibly disheartening i think we humans we go into relationship with optimism we go into relationship with a sense that uh this is the best thing that ever happened to us and so what a long fall down it is to then uh come to see that person um as enemy as darkness as um as sabotaging and yet so often those are the reciprocal perceptions of people who are separating and divorcing i think it's really important when we're having this conversation you're an expert in conflict resolution and negotiation and i think it's really valuable for us to go through some of the techniques some of the tools you think it would be useful for people to know when we're having this conversation about healthy dialogues, what are some of the tactics you think would be useful to put on people's mind as we are trying to navigate new times? Thank you for that question, Erin. You know, if you take a course, and I know you have, uh, from me and no doubt from many others, about conflict resolution or about negotiation, you will be taught listening skills, framing skills, uh, ways of trying to take um, statements that might have negativity in them and somehow massage them into being more positive, 
So there are a whole variety of communication skills and structuring skills and problem-solving skills that, that are taught. I have come, however, increasingly to believe that those skills are good and they are important. And certainly, if a person has a deficit in those areas, it's good to work on it. And at the same time, I notice that when I talk to experienced mediators about what they do in their own conflicts, what they do when they're in their own situation where um, it feels like all the pieces have been thrown up in the air and they feel disoriented and and uh, underappreciated and upset in the midst of whatever the conflict context is, they, they tend to not necessarily draw on those skills. They tend to exceptionalize their conflict. Oh, this is much different because it's so much worse than, uh, you know, than other situations or situations I've mediated. So um, that has led me more and more to think it's not so much about teaching what to do, although knowing what to do in the midst of conflict is useful. It's more in the realm of being. It's more in the realm of really asking ourselves the question, how can I be in the midst of this unsettled place? And that's a very difficult thing to do. I think in the world in which we live now, so much pulls us out. It draws us out. Social media draws us out. The pace of our lives draws us out. And so we have these very full outer lives, and perhaps uh, not as many impetuses to focus on our inner lives. And then um, we don't know how to be in the midst of crisis or conflict. And so I think, I think the answer, in part at least, is befriending our inner terrains, befriending our our relationship with silence, with holding ourselves intact in the midst of a people. This is a challenging question, but I think that you can offer some light into this. We often look now at cell phones and social media and laptops as a challenge for us to be in the present moment. And when I think of my grandmother, uh, she worked with horses, she would be outdoors, she would be on the farm, and perhaps more connected. And yet I feel like there's a dichotomy of remembering what that time might have been like. On the one hand, I hear, well, they didn't have a word for depression back then. So people who'd come back from war didn't know how to process those emotions and, and would just completely avoid it. And then on the other hand, it feels like there would have been more space to go for a walk and listen to the birds and kind of sit with emotions in a different way than right now you get cut off in traffic and it's react and you have somebody who says something rude to you and it's text them back and it seems more reactive but i'm curious do you think that we're better at negotiating worse at negotiating um have things just changed how do we think about over the past maybe 100 years of that difference of not having access to this to now where um we have access to constant communication oh Oh, yes, these are thorny, thorny issues, I think. Uh, and so I'm thinking of your grandmother and that she worked with horses and that she spent time in nature. 
I'm thinking about my parents who uh, spent time on farms and wanted nothing to do with the farm ever again in their lives because they found the work very hard and they wanted to do jobs behind desks and uh, with uh, what were then typewriters. Um, so I think you're right. We can idealize the past. Um, I also think as I look back at conflicts in my own family, um, I think about uh, one part of my extended family where there's a kind of rupture, a cutoff, where various members are not speaking to other members. And uh, I had occasion to speak with one of the younger uh, people in that uh, that tableau recently, and I said to them, um, you know, our mothers had no psychological vocabulary. Our mothers didn't know how to talk about things that were difficult or things that were taboo or things that had been traumatic. And I think that is true um, in general, that much more vocabulary is available to us now to think about trauma. As you said, people came back from the war and they had no place to put it, so it just became compartmentalized in their lives. Um, so I think we have many, many more resources. At the same time, I think that we live in a time when there's an ethos of um, progress and action and achievement, and that this, again, pulls us out and maybe um, doesn't help us contextualize how we use those psychological vocabularies or some of the resources that we now have that earlier generations didn't have. And I'm curious, actually, Erin, um, in your community, whether whether elders in your community, your grandmother and others, wouldn't say that um, the way things are talked about now um, is able to draw for more resources than in the past. I'd be curious about that. I would say that that is definitely the case. Um... My grandmother attended St. Mary's Indian Residential School here in Mission, and I often try and help my mother understand this because uh, she experiences it firsthand. Uh, she was taken in. She was My mother was born with fetal alcohol syndrome disorder as a consequence of my grandmother drinking alcohol in the womb, and then through that, she was malnourished and taken to Kokalita Indian Hospital and adopted by a, a Christian family, um, my non-biological grandmother, Dorothy Kennett, which meant she was part of the 60s scoop. And I would say that that was a huge benefit to her and myself, and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that nurse. But my mother's taken the decision to not be a part of her own family and to be disconnected from that personally. And then even today, my grandmother is not an emotional person. She's not a well-connected person. She's not a thoughtful person in that way of, trying to build bridges and look at how we can have dialogue and move past that trauma, she would still resort to something like alcohol to cope with those traumas. She doesn't want to talk about it. And I would say that's of no fault of her own. This was the tools that she was provided. And I'd be curious on your thoughts of 
are some of these things just at a certain point unreasonable to ask a person to, uh, she's in the hospital now, she only has so many years left. Is it fair for me to think she should go get a counsellor, work through these issues while she still has maybe a year or two left and address all these issues so we can make peace? Or do we accept her and love her for the things that she endured and understand that her experience will forever be different than the experience I have and my mother has. And that that does in some way put her in a different category where there are certain asks that are in fact unreasonable. Well, first I want to say that this story that you've just shared, Erin, um, touches me deeply. It's a very personal story. Thank you for sharing it. It's a, story which is not unique, unfortunately, but uh, is the story, uh, a variation of the story that many people tell. And I believe that as people living in this land, it's so important that we tell stories and that we give voice to what actually happened as opposed to trying to sweep it under the rug or gloss it over or get so absorbed in anger about it that um, we still don't really tell the story. So I hear you telling it with real compassion for your grandmother and for your mother and for yourself. And uh, that brings tears to me. I find that um, really, really moving. Um, I've had this same kind of question with a different history than yours in relation to my mother, because um, my mother had experienced sexual abuse by her elder brother. And although she told me about it when I was in my 30s, she told me about it like you might tell someone about the weather. She told me about it as a fact of something that happened, but not in a way that the emotions were even present in the telling. And this is how she had found to deal with it. My mother never went to therapy. It wasn't something that was uh, customary in her generation or with people that she knew. Um, and it took me a long time to come to a place of peace with understanding that she really didn't have that vocabulary, and even if she were in the vicinity of a kind of psychological or trauma-informed vocabulary, uh, she it wouldn't be hers. It wouldn't be something that she could adopt or that she could uh, kind of parachute into. I think that years before this damage had been done, it played out in very painful ways through her entire life. And um, my job was to be compassionate in relation to that. Um, I, for example, felt quite upset that she uh, never confronted my uncle, her elder brother, um, and and never, never brought to him what his actions had um, had generated. And for her, uh, it simply wasn't done. It simply wasn't spoken about. And I just wonder whether um, that isn't something that is simply to be acknowledged and um, 
and understood with compassion. Um, I actually, this is a big leap. It's a different topic entirely, but I've been doing some work about unplanned pregnancies and especially given changes to the law about abortion in the United States. And what I see is that this topic too, this question of sexual and reproductive health and choices around families and uh, births or abortions, um, it's an area that's really not talked about at all. You know, it's not talked about freely or comfortably. It's talked about often in loud voices. It's talked about with uh, with rights discourses, but it's not often talked about in very soft and compassionate ways. And so circling back to where where you started this exchange, I hear you talking in soft and compassionate ways, and I think that is surely um, something that we need to include in our thinking about conflict. It's not always to be kind of grabbed by the horns and fought with. Perhaps it's also to be witnessed and held, and that in that witnessing and holding, there can be a kind of shift that we hadn't even foreseen. I agree. I'm curious, as you we talk about intercultural relations, and I'm wondering if you would include some of the circumstances we're talking about with generations within this idea of of culture and having different cultural norms, because I do see my generation looking back at past generations with a sense of arrogance that they would have done differently had they been in these shoes and that they, because we are here now, we know better. And when we talk about the relationship between men and women in the home, when we talk about what best practices might look like, it seems like we're coming at it from a de very different lens today uh, without an appreciation of maybe the complexities uh, and the differences that existed then and without an appreciation of the potential benefits that did exist in the past and how we might balance the the benefits of that today with how we operate today and how we can balance the two and get the best of both worlds. Instead, it seems like there's a bit of arrogance, a bit of smugness to people of the past. I think that's very true. I think we, uh, you know, being in the university, I feel like I... I hear the current discourses about law or about psychology. I feel fortunate to be in the midst of those. And at the same time, um, it's so important for me to remember everyone is not. And so there are all sorts of arrogances, aren't there? You know, generationally, uh, but between those with a certain level of education and those with other kinds of experiences. Um, and it does seem, if you look back, you you earlier referred to a hundred years as a time frame. If we look back over a hundred years and maybe five generations, we probably see in every generation that kind of arrogance looking backwards. And if you think about the past hundred years also, um, it's been a time of more rapid change than any other time in human history in many ways, depending how you measure it. So it perhaps accentuates that phenomenon of being arrogant in relation to a previous generation. 
and certainly I, I've been guilty of that with respect to my parents' generation. Uh, they didn't have the educational advantages that I've had. Uh, they didn't have the lenses that I can put on and take off. Uh, and they didn't know that you could take off lenses. In fact, you know, they didn't have the, the perspectives that uh, now many would take for granted. And uh, and still, both of my parents are are no longer on this plane. And I remember them with kindness. I remember my father being incredibly compassionate to others, um, and my mother, who was quite a harsh person um, as a result of some of her early experiences. Um, I do my best to remember her with love because she suffered. She suffered a lot. And I think when we feel judgment or arrogance toward others, whether generationally or educationally, um, then we don't necessarily make room for that loving gaze that we, we can have. Do you think that there is a route to conflict typically? Do you think that there's a typical spot where we find it I think of when a person's coming home from work and maybe they're dissatisfied with how they're greeted. And then there's a sense of, I, I deserve to be greeted in, in their head, not out loud, that I deserve to be greeted with this response and they're not doing for that, that for me. And so instead of saying anything about it, I'm going to take back something where maybe they're grateful for. Maybe I usually make dinner and I'm going to say, I'm not going to make dinner tonight. And instead of actually communicating and reflecting on these are the things that shape me, this is what makes me feel seen, valued, heard, loved, connected. And I don't feel like we're doing that. So how could we proceed? And I'm just curious, do you think that there's a typical route where a majority of, of disagreements, of conflicts arise from? And is it unmet expectations? I'm sure, Erin, that unmet expectations are a big part of it. I think that's uh, that's very insightful. Um, I think about the wonderful artist whose name was M.C. Richards. She passed away just a few years ago. And uh, before she died, she had lived in an intentional community on the East Coast of the U.S. for a number of years. And she was asked if she would write a chapter about conflict in a book that was going to be uh, put together about women's perspectives on different issues. And uh, she said she absolutely would write a chapter about conflict because she knew a lot about conflict, having lived in this community for some time. <laughs> and uh, I think also having lived as an artist, because we don't make the way easy for artists in in uh, many of our cultural contexts. Um, and so she wrote a chapter about conflict, and in it she said, in the midst of our mutual involvement, we befall each other constantly. And, and uh, it's a bit of archaic wording, but I think it's wonderful. We befall each other all the time. You know, whether I'm not greeted the way I wish to be greeted when I come home or my partner doesn't answer my call when I have an urgent question to ask, or, um, you know, fill in the blank, all these things. And why do they matter when 
we discuss them and they sound so trivial. They matter because they connect into um, those places where we each have a deep need to be acknowledged and seen and heard and witnessed, witnessed in our lives and, and welcomed in the world. Um, those of us who didn't feel very welcomed as children in the world, um, I think we're more likely to then see unwelcoming in other uh, aspects of our adult lives. So our patterns follow us, and then our work is about um, being aware of those patterns and being aware that even in the most congenial, well-adapted family or relationship, we maybe follow each other constantly. At least that's my experience. And maybe it's because I've studied conflict for many years, so I see it everywhere, but I think it's pretty ubiquitous. I tend to agree with you, and I think how we resolve that is a sign of the cultural differences we might have and the style in which we resolve things which is personally why I find the idea of taking indigenous values and trying to apply them to Western culture is really interesting to me because in some circumstances, I tend not to agree with the move. And it's because indigenous communities don't scale the way Western culture has. And this is one of the challenges I see when we're talking about, it's not to say that they're wrong or incorrect, but a sentencing circle in an indigenous community works because the 200 members all know each other and so they're all starting from a reasonable place, trying to take that same model and put it into a provincial court or Supreme Court doesn't work the same way because nobody knows each other. And there you have to. And during this time, when we talk about decolonization, I do see a danger in not recognizing the brilliance of the system that exists. And that's not to say that the system is perfect. But that is to say that there are certain ways in which the system does function. And when we talk about the ability for an accused individual of a crime to be able to go in and have unbiased individuals judging based on the facts and, and not being allowed to make prejudgments about them, to have to follow beyond reasonable doubt, to have to follow certain rules and functions. This is a system that works even if you're from another country, you speak a different language, you don't have the same cultural values. The idea is this system is still supposed to function when you don't know the judge, the sheriff, the court staff, or any of the people in the room, and you're still supposed to find this idea of justice. And I'm just curious as to how you feel about how we weave in a system, because I think there's opportunities for it, but we have to be careful when we're trying to take these steps and we have to be appreciative of the systems that work and how they work, rather than just saying we're going to supplant this system in this existing system and fix it. Erin, again, I find myself agreeing with you. So uh, I think you make an excellent point and, and you know, I hope that my work is part of the project of decolonization. That's very important to me. And at the same time, I think appropriation or just translating something from one system into another has all sorts of difficulties associated with it. You've just illustrated one, that if you take a system from a very intact uh community where everyone has a lot of bonds, a lot of threads uh, that connect them, and you plant it in a system where that's not at all the case, 
uh, then it doesn't work in the same way it can't. And, uh, you know, I do think that it's important that we look at systems in context and we look at how our justice system, in the example you've given, functions where it can be improved, where it's systemically biased, and therefore, um, you know, for example, in sentencing, um, someone's life experience, particularly as an Indigenous person in Canada, needs to be taken into account and should be taken into account so that um, sentencing practices are um, not grossly unfair over and over. And uh, so I think I think that's important, but I also think that it's it's important not to just uh, discard an entire system in favor of something that looks more relational, that looks more relational and and human and compassionate. And uh, I think sometimes that's what happens when people get excited about, family group conferencing, uh, which after all comes from uh, Maori people in, in New Zealand, or sentencing circles um, for the same reason. Um, I also, I'm aware of a book, I don't know if you know of it, it was written some years ago by a, a law professor at the University of Alberta called Annalise Acord, and, and what she argues, her book's about uh, practices like sentencing circles, and she argues that um, they enforce compulsory compassion. You know, that in fact, um, they may not always function well in terms of accountability or in terms of um, bringing a person face-to-face -face with the consequences of their actions in the way that sometimes they clearly do. I would tend to agree with you, which is actually one of my critiques of First Nations Court, is that a, we don't have data on whether or not they're actually effective at addressing recidivism rates or in, or any of those rates. But then on top of that, they feel incredibly meaningful to be in the room and to hear somebody's story of abuse and childhood harm. And you feel like you're connected to something. And so the people in the room go, oh, you got to do this. This is incredible. You're experiencing a person's life. And, and it's so raw and it's so real. And that can feel so good. And my counterpoint is that should be done in a counselor's office or with an elder, not for the display. This is not theatrics. This is not for our entertainment. And we do risk enjoying it, the experience of compassion and emotion and feeling so much that we forget that this is a person's life, that we're not registered counselors, and that this isn't perhaps the right venue for this type of emotion. I think that's really true, and it brings me to circle back to something, Erin, that you raised earlier, which was about uh, people who have survived Indian residential schools. And if we think about the various um, mechanisms and processes that were devised to address those harms in whatever um, uh, inadequate way, then um, we see that many people who had perhaps never told their stories were somehow compelled to tell those stories in order to fit into certain categories for uh, compensation. And that just 
um, and to tell those stories in front of strangers. Yes, perhaps with an elder or a support person, but in front of strangers, nonetheless, in front of a, a lawyer who who would adjudicate uh, various claims. And it just struck me that it was um, mixing some reach for justice with something which is much more appropriately dealt with in the psychotherapeutic context. And so uh, to me, that's been one of my critiques of, uh, of those processes. From about 13 years old to probably about 21 years old, I believed that politics shouldn't be a private conversation. And growing up uh, during my childhood, politics was still very much, uh, you keep your political opinions to yourself. And we've seen that relatively undone. Um, most, For the most part, you're able to share your political perspectives uh, with people. You're able to post about things on social media. Uh, it's not as private as perhaps it used to be. And it's only more recently that I wonder if there wasn't some sage wisdom in keeping our political opinions more private, that perhaps the ability to voice all of our perspectives constantly is a danger when we don't aren't able to take the time to thoughtfully develop an opinion. When we see something we sort of agree with, we leap on it, and that's now our team. We're full force on it. And I felt like you, one of the things that I, the reasons I wanted to sit down with you is because I felt like you handled the, the conversations around the COVID-19 pandemic pandemic incredibly thoughtfully, because in my opinion, there is a range of perspectives on the issue. And there was even during uh, the height of it, there was different perspectives. And now we look at the truckers with a certain perspective, um, but you navigated and you held space for individuals in our classroom really well. There were individuals in our classroom who thought it was abhorrent of the university to consider reopening and have students come back to school. And then there were other individuals who were like, there's no need for a mask. We're at an age in our life. We're going to be fine. The statistics show that people our age are going to be fine. There's not that much to worry about. We can go back to school. There was a range. And during that period, it didn't feel like the two sides were able to communicate effectively on social media, in the news, in any space, except your classroom. And that's what I found really inspirational about you is because to to think some courses, there's a person teaching the course that maybe isn't the best at it. But I do feel like you held space for both sides and for the people who had one strong opinion that we shouldn't be going to school. You'd not challenge them, but you'd open their eyes to a different perspective. And for the individuals who were like, it's silly that we're not coming back to school, you provided the lens of challenges that that might create, giving the two space to understand things. And I think it's a good illustration of the challenges we face when we're having political conversations. And I know that this is an interest of yours. So I'd be curious as to how you think about those things behind the scenes when you see things getting heated in political. How do you process that? Mm. Thank you. Again, there's a lot in what you've said, Erin. So I want to start back with the social media piece and say that uh, I'm actually not on social media because I find that it fragments my attention. And uh, I I worry about privacy and I also worry about the quality of engagement that happens there. So I don't participate much at all. But I had occasion to see a Twitter thread recently that had to do with a political issue, and I was shocked. I was quite floored at the vitriol and the kind of 
um, not not difference of opinion, but the nastiness of differences of opinion. That um, there was kind of an unrestrained ethos around uh, the way that people were participating in relation to this particular issue. So I have to say I feel really worried about that because I think that it moves us as a collective away from civility, away from respectful engagement. And so that's that's a concern generally. In relation to uh, your your mind compliments in relation to the the COVID-19 moment that we all lived through and perhaps we're now living just through the tail end of it. I hope so. Um it is quite fascinating that it could be seen in very, very different ways, and a coherent story could be told from quite different perspectives about what uh, what should have been done from a policy perspective, how we collectively and how our leaders should have handled that time. I did some research during covid uh, around religion and religious leaders and how they were uh, responding to COVID-19. And uh, I got very interested with these the idea that civil authorities are just kind of um, low level and that actually um, we need to take our cues from divinity, and then we would act quite differently. Um, but again, that could mean that we would um, defer to civil authorities or absolutely defy them. So um, even within various religious perspectives, um, there was deep and visceral disagreement. One of my long, long-term friends, um, took a very strong position against vaccination and and, uh, and experienced being treated as an outcast in many ways. And I think that's a very strange thing that we did, we humans, to kind of sort people as anti-vaxxers or pro-vaxxers. Um, but what I would say in general is this, that if studying and working with conflict for decades has given me many gifts, and I think it has. One of the chief gifts is the capacity to do my best to stay connected across difference or to invite others to do that. I don't think in our primary education or our university education we do much at all around that question, around asking, how can I deeply disagree with you? I'm certain that you're wrong, and that if we follow your way of proceeding, uh, we're going to end up in a disaster. You know, whatever the issue is, if I'm certain that you're wrong, and I'm certain that I'm right, although I think always questioning that certainty is also helpful, um, then how can I stay connected with you and engage with you? And I'll go back, actually, to my research about abortion, because way back in the 1990s, I had the occasion to interview many people, actually hundreds of people, who had been in dialogue groups 
that they called pro-life, pro-choice dialogue groups, people who were in favor of publicly funded abortion and people who are not. And one of the most moving moments in those interviews was visiting a group in Colorado who had been meeting with each other uh, for about 18 months. And within that group, there were people who were very staunchly pro-life and people who were very clearly committed to pro-choice. And while I was there observing the group in dialogue, one of the pro-life people said to one of the pro-choice people, um, we deeply disagree, and that's why I want to stay in relationship with you. And I think it struck me, Erin, because it was so unusual. Generally, if I deeply disagree with you, I don't want to stay in relationship with you. And we can look at our kind of political fragmentation in Canada, if you just think of the federal parties for a moment. Um, you know, people who would align with one party or another would see uh, those who are not aligned as they are as somehow just deeply misguided and problematic, maybe even dangerous. Um, and that, I think, is a huge problem. You know, we have so many macro problems in the world today, whether violent conflict or climate change, um, or trying to find some way of creating justice around the harms of colonization and many other things. And um, if we can stay connected to each other in our disagreements, then we just have a kind of survival of the fittest dynamic going on. Um, that person who has the most access to power at that moment imposes their solution. And that doesn't work very well over time. I agree. One of the areas that I was, to be honest, the most disappointed in was that I never actually heard anybody else bring up the term steel manning. Uh, because I think it is probably one of the most useful terms that a student at law school could learn. And I actually didn't hear it said. And it's one of my biggest values is to take uh, a group, a perspective that I vehemently disagree with and make the most coherent argument for how they're correct to push my brain to see their per their perspective, to increase my neuroplasticity, and to keep a balanced perspective in the long term. And I noticed that that was incredibly unpopular for certain periods, and it doesn't, again, mean that I agree with them, but my ability to see, okay, this group, in this case the truckers, are incredibly loud, and they're being incredibly vocal. So instead of just simplifying them down to um, whatever terms have been used, that they're deplorable individuals, let's try and figure out what their point might be. And let's see if there's any any merit to what they're saying. Is there anything we could do differently based on that? And it gives me always admiration for our system again, because we have a system where there's a group in, in power and then there's an adversarial group meant to hold them accountable. They're called the opposition party for a reason. And they're meant to poke holes and point out how they're not living up to expectations. And when I saw the opposition do this, they were accused of being abhorrent individuals that were condoning malevolence and evil. And to me, that is their responsibility. And so I'm just curious as to your thoughts on, 
is conflict bad? Is it something to avoid or is it a tool in which we look at what, what some consider the pursuit of truth? Ah, well, I was with you until we got to truth. I don't know if I can go as far as truth, but I would say that um, conflict is ubiquitous and conflict is necessary. It's an agent of social change. So if we take the truckers issue that you have used as an example, if there could be that understanding, it's not about... Uh, can we bring about agreement between the truckers and whoever was judging them or opposing them? It's about, can we bring about understanding? Can we bring about some sense of seeing what the world looks like from over there? You know, in fancy terms, we call it contextual evaluation. Can I get inside your world enough to be able to see how it looks from in there? You know, I can never be fully in your world. I can't feel what you felt. I can't, um, my cells of my body do not have the same sensations as yours. But in making the effort to actually come inside your context and to understand it enough to be able to do that, and then ask the question, what does the world look like from there? That is so important. I think just vitally important uh, going forward. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen an example, maybe you have, I would love to know, um, of anyone who has been judgmental and uh, very, very critical, for example, of those who joined the convoy, um, actually sitting down and giving themselves the challenge of, of articulating what does the world look like from inside the convoy. Um, I would also say that conflict is an, an engine of social change, and we need it. You know, if you're concerned, as I am, about um, some of the forestry practices in this province, um, just sitting at home being concerned doesn't create much change. Unfortunately, we uh, we need to be in conflict in order to find ways of addressing those things that are much more complex than any one individual can fix. I'm curious as to how you think about judges in our society, because they play an instrumental role, but often there's a challenge in maybe there isn't a 50-50 middle ground. What is, how do we think about resolving disputes? How do we think about the person tasked with hearing both perspectives and coming to some sort of conclusion? Oh, boy, you have a lot of difficult questions. <laughs> so, so um, you know, some of the work that I've done, Erin, uh, for the National Judicial Institute and other groups has been talking to judges about intercultural um, perspectives, about cultural fluency, because uh, many people become judges when they're fairly senior in their career. Uh, they may have a certain amount of socioeconomic well-being. Uh, they certainly have many, many years of post-secondary education. And so they don't necessarily see uh, a person who comes before them um, 
in ways that are accurate. They see them always through their own lenses. So I have a concern that judges um, work on cultural fluency, work on racism, work on sexism, work on ableism, you know, all those ways that we distort pictures of each other. Um, and that said, um, when you talked about conflict resolution, it also brought to mind for me that uh, you know, many people in recent decades have argued for the term conflict transformation. Can we take a conflict and can we actually, uh, by engaging in it in a respectful way, uh, transform it so that we change the ground that we're standing on? We change the issues. We change our way of being in the issues. Um, and going back to judges, I'm not sure that judging is necessarily transformative in relation to conflict. It's uh, dispositional. It uh, finds some disposition, some completion in relation to, for example, a criminal offense or in relation to a civil matter. Um, but many, many of the kinds of complex or multi-party matters that exist amongst us now um actually don't, don't have good legal remedies associated with them. And so um, I think that early thinking, early by which I mean maybe 50 years ago, when American colleagues started talking about multi-door courthouses and multiple avenues to pursue justice, I think those are important ideas that um, if you have, for example, a a question about land use where there are overlapping claims from indigenous groups in relation to that land use and then perhaps industries involved in labor and uh, many other groups, our judicial system doesn't have good tools for addressing that. And so then I think we need to be building processes which integrate indigenous legal traditions and which integrate also um flexible, problem-solving-oriented ways of addressing differences so that we can actually more fairly and more fittingly address complex kinds of issues that confront us. One of the, my favorite pieces in your course was this negotiation process, being given a hat to wear and think about what's in their best interest and then going into a negotiation with a different person who has a different list of facts on what their best outcome is. And I'm going to pull Tim into this because he actually lives out. Uh, he just told me the story a little while ago, and it actually lives out exactly one of the lessons that you put for us. And it's I think the the overlying idea is that sometimes there isn't an outcome that makes it a proper negotiation, like a fair outcome. Sometimes it's what's best for both parties, and it goes nowhere near what either party would expect. And so the example that Tim gave, and perhaps he can tell it better than me, is the story around uh, his, his URL or uh, his domain name being used. And Tim, you were willing to accept that for, I believe, $1,000. Am I mistaken on that? Um, and you thought you were getting a fairly good deal, uh, but you found out sort of the backstory behind what the company's position was. Uh, and realize that perhaps you could have negotiated for more had you known their internal issues. Boy, that's putting me on the spot. I'm just supposed to be a podcast here. <laughs> um, 
for Michelle's point, I'll, I'll tell the story very quickly. Way back when we used to have a short, what would be deemed now as a podcast, I imagine, a video podcast. It was in around the year 1998. And we owned a few seconds.com and did a, these short little videos kind of ahead of our time in a way. Um, but it got too expensive because YouTube wasn't around. You, you actually paid for hosting. And when people viewed your video many, many times, it cost you money. So we ended up shutting it down. And so I had this great URL, a few seconds.com. And I kept renewing it, thinking one day I'll do something with it. Uh, but I got a random email from someone looking to acquire this domain. And I knew a little bit of searching that it was an advertising agency in Philadelphia, and they were representing their client. And I'm th sitting there going, oh, what's this worth? And I just, I randomly said $1,000 US. And immediately they responded, okay, where do we send the money? And I was kicking myself going, what was it worth? And so for the next few months, I just was clicking refresh, refresh on that website. And it turns out, I believe it was the European introduction of Viagra. And so it was five, Pfizer that was buying this domain to be the, the linchpin for their advertising campaign. <laughs> and I said to myself, what was this ad agency like they must have been given a budget because they had clearly built this entire campaign prior to because it was quite short order that they had launched this. So it was it was critical that they had that or something very close to it as the URL. So I think that's what you're referring to, is it not? It is. And Michelle, we did this. We ran through this exact case study, the exact the URL being purchased, the price of it, the value of it. Can you talk about that? How crazy is this? Isn't that such a coincidence? Thanks for sharing that story, Tim. Um, and that that's exactly what I was thinking, Aaron, that we, we worked with a scenario which is called Live 8, which is a takeoff on Live 8. Um, and uh, this was a situation where uh, the owner of a small art gallery had the URL that Live Aid needed. Um, and uh, Live Aid, of course, uh, an organization with huge resources. And uh, so what's been really fascinating in working with that, uh, that scenario, which was developed by a wonderful colleague named Noam Ebner, um, is that there has been an enormous range of amounts paid for the URL. Um, and so I would say it has ranged from everywhere from, say, $500 up to most recently, uh, when I was teaching a course in Toronto at York University uh, using Live 8, um, someone paid $2 million for the URL. And uh, that was really shocking. I'd never heard such a high number. But the whole question, what is it worth? As you've said, Tim, uh, it depends. <laughs> it depends on uh, who needs it and for what. And uh, it just strikes me that that's such a useful negotiation experience for many people to have because, um, you know, we talk about objectivity. You even mentioned, Aaron, earlier the word truth. And, you know, what's the truth of what the URL is worth? 
The answer is it depends. And that's so true in so many things that it's not about some sort of objective standard of value. It's a question of what matters to each of the parties and why, and how can they come to an outcome that feels to both of them fair. So I hear you saying after the fact, oh, maybe that wasn't so fair. <laughs> if I had known more, um, I might have rethought fairness and fair enough. Um, and at the same time, um, because students will often have terrible remorse when they see, well, I got a thousand, but my colleague over here in the same scenario got uh, 300,000. Um, and yet, if the person who got a thousand is satisfied and feels like, yeah, that was a fair value at that time, um, then uh, they go from there, right? So I think your example is is one a bit like um, the person who paid $2 million, but in reverse. <laughs> and, uh, and you look back and say, wow, how did we get there? And I guess one of the reasons I think it's so useful to do that kind of experience in class, and I'm glad you remember it, Erin, is that um, it gives us this message that more investigation of each other's interests is better than less. So if if I get a random email offering to buy my URL um, to say, let's have a talk about that, uh, can be really useful. And one of the uh, aspects of that particular stimulation is it's done by email, and often not that much information is exchanged. So we think about which mediums are more information-rich to, to facilitate exchange amongst parties. I think there's a beauty and a peace that you can get from that story, which is that as long as you act uh, to the best of your ability to achieve what you need in order to be successful, that that's achievable um, in a healthy negotiation and that there isn't a right answer because there's a sense when you go in with a lawyer or when you're working with somebody, it's get as much as you can at all costs. And that's how I think negotiation is often displayed or, or articulated by people, that that's the goal of a good negotiator, to go in for war, go in for blood and get everything you can and leave nothing on the table at all costs. And that's just simply not how we operate uh, when there's best practices being implemented. As long as you can take care of your, your circumstance, as long as you're getting what's fair and equitable uh, by your own definition, uh, that's achievable. I think so. And I think it's a question of, was the process satisfactory? And was it relational? You know, in the case of these examples, there may not have been an ongoing relationship between the the uh, seller and the purchaser of the URL, but often there is some sort of ongoing relationship, or maybe there's a possibility of one that can benefit both parties. So I do think that this kind of win as much as you can mentality is often quite counterproductive. It it inculcates even in the negotiator her himself a kind of edge that uh, is not necessarily conducive to harmony within or without. In my opinion, you speak, and there are a few people I've had the pleasure of speaking with, that speak with a sense of peace that isn't 
being sold, that isn't being marketed as as an opportunity, but genuinely has a sense of peace within themselves, within the place that they're at. Um, and I think that that's so valuable. You can hear it in your voice uh, that you have this sense of peace. And I think it does deliver in a classroom where we're talking about political issues, the opportunity for others to want to seek that out. And there is no place to go find peace. But I know you practice yoga. I know you follow and and research and listen to uh, very intelligent voices. I would say more wise than necessarily intelligent that are more thoughtful. And so I'm just curious for listeners, is there any recommendations on the direction, the steps they can start to take to move in that direction of peace, in your opinion? Is there books? Is there practices that you follow to sort of move in that direction? Thank you, Aaron. That's a question close to my heart. So um, we talked earlier about being as well as doing. And uh, to me, um, it's so vitally important to have practices that are about being, not doing. And so, um, yes, I practice yoga. Uh, I also practice meditation and contemplative, other contemplative practices. One of my favorite things to do is to go on um, long-distance walks where every day I'm just walking, preferably on a path where people have walked for many hundreds or thousands of years. I think I can then listen in to some of the stories. Um, it would depend on the the lexicon and the tradition that would have resonance for listeners of course. Um, so um, I would recommend very highly M.C. Richard's uh, writing on conflict uh, that I quoted from earlier, and I can make that chapter available, I think, as long as, um, uh, as I can certainly make the reference to it available. Um, then I've, I've been just deeply compelled and drawn to understanding about pre-Christian traditions and practices, especially as they are anchored in the land in Ireland. So uh, for me, that's another source of inspiration to imagine that um, there have been societies where um, mercy as an ethic, compassion as an ethic, have been practiced. And uh, I don't know that we have too many such societies in our midst now. We have certainly those moments and those practices amongst us. Um, and so I continue to follow the work of a wonderful Irish theologian named Mary Condren and to do my best to understand how it is that um, we gave ourselves over to a kind of patriarchal, materialist, competitive ethos uh, when we actually have in our heritage, um, and I, I'm sure this is true for many Indigenous peoples um, here in, in this land and also um, in Europe, we have in our histories and in our traditions models of doing things that are quieter, and perhaps uh, less less integrating of greed uh, and more integrating of heart. And uh, my my suggestion would be that 
it doesn't matter so much what the tradition is or the path is as it matters to choose one. I think uh, um, his holiness, the Dalai Lama, once said when he was here in Vancouver uh, back about 20 years ago, he said, just stand in your tradition and work from there, you know, and work those practices and inhabit them. Uh, he wasn't suggesting we all become Buddhists. Um, as attractive as that may be to people who uh, don't like theistic uh, worldviews, um, he suggested that we find traditions that have resonance and history for us and then dig our wells deeply there. And I think that's uh, that's really important. And I think it's very sustaining uh, when we're able to do that. Michelle, I thank you so much for sitting down today. Uh, I think that this was um, beautiful to go through some of these ideas. I hope that it can bring people together, that we can remember that we are more similar than we are different. I think you're a very elegant, thoughtful speaker, and it's just such a pleasure to uh, spend this time with you. Aaron, thank you. Thank you for so many thoughtful questions. Thank you for uh, telling so much of your own story and sharing your own values and perspectives. I've enjoyed our dialogue thoroughly. Thank you so much. Remember to rate the podcast on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's a huge help um, from what I hear from the people who talk about how to grow your podcast. So that would really appreciate that. And uh, tune in again for another episode. Actually, I have one thing to add. Uh, don't ever pull me in again to talk about Viagra. How did you know to say the name of the company? I didn't have to, but it added to, added to the point of it. I, I don't think I was disappointed as much as just I was very happy to get a thousand bucks until I learned that this was a major multinational pharmaceutical launch. Yeah. But when you told me that story, it literally jogged the memory of students being like, I only asked for like 300 bucks for that URL. And they they had a budget of like a million dollars for it and feeling like they had failed when they didn't. And when you said like, I felt like I made the wrong move, it was like exactly, that's a true case. And what we learned in the class, and I thought it was just a brilliant opportunity to take your story, connect it with what I learned and uh, to, to be able to bring you on was just super cool. No regrets. Yeah, I, I certainly appreciate being given the heads up that I would be brought on. <laughs> it came to me in my head. I didn't even think of it. I don't have anything about it written down. And it just came to me when we were interviewing. And I was like, oh, yeah, Tim's got that story. And then I was like, I want to do it sort of at the end so we can wrap up with it. So Tim doesn't. So it's like a Tim talk in, in kind of context. Well, now we're done. We're done.